You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Morning scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Mark 2, 13 through 22. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour, the wine, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, EBF family. It's so good to be with you. And... Amid these expressions, these wonderful expressions of thanksgiving, too. What a powerful reminder. It's great to get the kids involved, too. We have so many reasons. We sang of 10,000 reasons, but we have myriads upon reasons to praise and bless the name of our Lord. And I pray for us that this would not just be a one-day or a one-week type of activity, but we would come to be a posture of our lives, of our very hearts And this Thanksgiving, as we spend time perhaps with family and friends and so forth, I pray that God would give us gospel opportunities as we engage in table fellowship together. And even as we see in this passage here this morning, just the 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 vitality, the importance of spending time together around, around a common meal, my prayer is that these gospel opportunities would be places for the streams of living water to flow, these conversations, even around the table afterwards as we spend time, as we spend time together. Would you uh, join me in a word of prayer this morning? Our Father, we praise your name and thank you for your richest blessings, which are ours through your Son. We praise you for all the expressions of thanksgiving we have heard and have seen and represented by these cards in front of us, Lord. We are reminded of how much we have to be thankful for. And Father, we recognize even in our thanksgiving that that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. We pray your kingdom come and your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. And in the wake of Friday's verdict in Wisconsin, Lord, we pray for the families of the victims, that you would pour out your comfort and peace. Father, we ask for the safety of peaceful protesters, for laws that protect the right to peacefully assemble, and for the grace to remain peaceful even in the face of injustice. We pray for an end to vigilantism and long for that day when swords will be, will be beaten into plowshares. Father, I pray for my dear sisters and brothers here, those that come in today weary and wounded, all who gather here, Lord, with the preaching of your word this morning. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help all of us who are weak and weary. Spirit, come. Illumine your word. Magnify Jesus. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. If you will indulge me in a little bit of an autobiographical sketch, in the fall of 2005, I felt the tug of God upon my heart. This is actually after I had recently returned from a deployment to Iraq with the army, and I felt the tug of God on my heart to do something maybe a little unexpected as I returned to Bradley University. I know it's no, no Northwestern, but Bradley, the hilltop, <laughs> I don't know if we have any claim to fame, but Anyway, um, returned to Bradley, and there, prior to that deployment, I had served, I had been a part of a Christian service fraternity on campus. But what I felt God calling me to do as I returned to campus was to actually go through Rush and join one of the social fraternities there on campus in order to bring about a gospel impact, much like God had began using me in the lives of some of my fellow soldiers as well in the, in the desert of all places. And it was there I had the opportunity, I just think about some of those late night conversations, kind of was like a go-to guy for some spiritual questions. Uh, Maybe the most frustrating thing about it was, you know, having somebody bearing their soul and uh, late at night and only to find out that they'd been drinking heavily. So the next day they're like, I don't remember anything about yesterday. I'm like, oh, you almost gave your life to Christ. Well. We don't want people doing that when they're under the influence, but anyway, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I mean, I used pizza and beer as part of a tactic for, uh, you know, investigative Bible study, which is a a wonderful thing to be a part of. But I also remember wrestling with the tension of some of my friends and acquaintances, not only in that Christian service fraternity prior, but even other believers on campus involved in different ministries that thought perhaps that I had gone off the deep end. Why was I associating with those kinds of guys, right? I felt surprised in some ways by the distancing I felt at the hands of previous Christian friends who were confused or perhaps even thought, like I said, I I had gone off the deep end. But if there is a phrase I could use to describe that time, it is that of wrestling with tension. And maybe you're there too. Maybe you're there, maybe as one of the few believers in your family, even as you get ready to go to celebrate Thanksgiving together. Maybe you wrestle with that tension in your workplace of seeking to live a faithful gospel witness amidst many, many around us who do not know Jesus. In the text that we're looking at this morning, 
I believe that there are four different tensions that are highlighted. And my prayer is that instead of, of running away from these particular tensions, that we would wrestle with them, that we would humbly seek the wisdom that God gives in order to faithfully navigate them in a gospel-centered way. The bottom line, simply put, is that following Jesus means at times wrestling with tensions. Following Jesus means at times wrestling with tensions. But it also reminds us, this passage, that following Jesus means that not only are there certain tensions we're going to face, but that we are not left to navigate them on our own. The Lord Jesus goes before us as our guide, behind us as our guard, and alongside us as our friend. Even as we will see in this passage, he is a friend of sinners. And so we're going to do just that. We're going to explore the story here in Mark 2, 13 through 22, and wrestle with these four particular tensions, beginning with the calling of Levi in verses 13 to 14. Just to set the stage a little bit, in Mark 2, 1 through 12, Jesus had confronted the religious leaders and miraculously healed a paralyzed man, demonstrating his ability to forgive. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And what he does here is actually illustrate that forgiveness in the calling of Levi. Verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. You see, tax collectors were despised at this time. Since they not only collected taxes for Rome, the occupier collected taxes on trade and goods and skimmed a little bit more off the top for themselves. They were viewed as traitors and as cronies even by their fellow Jews. Their homes were considered impure. Their testimony was invalid in court. They were often found as a disgrace to their family and even barred from the local synagogue, the local place of worship. Think for a moment about how French, how the French viewed Nazi collaborators during World War II. Or maybe, and I know this isn't exactly the same, but maybe how loan sharks might be viewed today. There wasn't a lot of love for tax collectors, much like, can I say it? There isn't a lot of love for the IRS necessarily today. Um, I can't help but think about Benjamin Franklin's famous line in this world, nothing is certain, how did he put it, except death and taxes. I just have become familiar with the Evanston wheel tax, for instance. Has everybody paid that? I won't do a show of hands. Somebody here is like, wait, what? <laughs> Levi, he may very well have had the second name of Matthew, according to Matthew 9, verse 9, a pretty common in, in uh, the first century Jewish culture. But Luke uses a very interesting word here for saw. It means more than just a casual glance. It means to look directly at or to observe. Jesus' conscious selection of this man named Levi is no accident. It is clearly part of God's plan. And Jesus says two simple words that dramatically change the trajectory of Levi's life, and that is follow me. An invitation to total commitment. How would Levi respond? The end of verse 14 says, and Levi got up, and followed him. Luke 5, 28 adds that he left everything 
Levi responds immediately by leaving everything, including his, his position as a tax collector, breaking away from his former way of life and following Jesus, much like the fishermen in chapter 1. And the next thing we know, we find Levi slash Matthew in the list of the 12 disciples. This, through this ragtag group, a worldwide disciple-making movement would be launched. Churches planted for the glory of God. Church, Jesus saw and summoned a man no one wanted. A man despised by pretty much everyone around him. Knowing his potential, knowing what he could become. He rejected the social and religious conventions and saw the person and their potential, even the most unlikely of people. And so a takeaway for us to consider is that regardless of our background, status, or even reputation, God's grace and forgiveness is available. And Jesus summons us to follow him. The truth is that we are all unlikely recipients of God's grace. But Jesus sees you He knows you personally. He goes to the edge of town and he calls you to follow him. Following Jesus is a decisive act with no turning back. It is an abandoning of our former way of life and a radical realignment of priorities. And so the first tension that we encounter in this passage too is the tension between who we might view as the likely or deserving recipients of God's grace and who God actually chooses to pour his grace out upon. We have a tendency to write certain people off or perhaps to view certain people as irredeemable. I can't help but think about a late night conversation one night. Actually, this was, I think, in 2000 or 2004. Late night conversation with with an army buddy, one who I thought was open and receptive to the gospel, and we had had many conversations together, and I was laying, laying things out as, as best I could and came to that point of, of uh, whether he would choose to follow Jesus. And he was like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm like, wait, wait what? No, nah, I'm good. And from across the tent, there was a buddy that I, honestly, I had completely written off. I just thought was hostile to the gospel. Somebody that perhaps, anyway, from across the tent, he said, I want to do that. (laughs) Like, what? I want to do that. And so he right there, then and there, he prayed to receive Christ. He'd been listening in and gave his life to Christ there on the spot. Thank God that regardless of our background, our status, or reputation, his grace and forgiveness is available. And he summons us to follow him, even the most unlikely of people. He has a habit of doing that. That is a hallmark of his ministry, calling the most unlikely and undeserving people to follow him. Well, as we would expect, the calling of Levi stirs up controversy. But this is no accident. Look at the feasting controversy in, fifth, in verses 15 through 17, starting in verse 15 there. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Luke, in Luke's telling of the story, he adds, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. One of the many 
the first things Levi does in, in following Jesus is throw a party in his honor. I love that. But the people who turn out are a little rough around the edges. Regardless of that, Jesus reclines with them. I love that picture too. Reclines with them in table fellowship as a sign of loving acceptance. This sort of table fellowship is subversive because it challenges the barriers, the society, the societal barriers in place, such as class or ethnicity or occupation. And needless to say, this doesn't sit well with the religious leaders. Verse 16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees belong to the most important and influential parties. It actually is both a religious and a political party, numbering close to 6,000, who strictly adhered to Old Testament laws as well as many additional traditions and regulations on top of that. And this movement included teachers or scribes who were considered experts in the law. The, ter- the very term Pharisee actually comes from an o- Old Testament word that means separated ones. So you can see the, the clash that's beginning to build. And the complaint they bring to the disciples, interesting kind of end around perhaps, going to the disciples, is the inappropriate association with tax collectors and sinners by eating and drinking with them. That word sinners might stand out to us here. It basically is anyone who failed to follow God's law in the way that the teachers of the law felt appropriate. The New Living Translation, I think, captures this well by saying, by phrasing it, why does he eat and drink with such scum? (laughs) The Pharisees who carefully followed the rules thought this would make them ceremonially unclean. And they are offended at the way Jesus doesn't respect what they view as essential boundaries. But think about this. Jesus had just cleansed the leper without becoming unclean. He brings sinners to repentance without becoming defiled by them. And so in verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus taps into this this well-known imagery here to drive his point home. And his point is that he hangs out with those who are sick because they are in need and will respond to the offer for help. A person who is healthy or thinks they are won't seek help. But Levi was living proof in their midst of the sick being made well. Jesus does not come to make good people more religious. He comes to bring spiritual liberation, especially among the marginalized, the isolated, and condemned. And the religious leaders sought to preserve the status quo while Jesus came proclaiming good news, forgiveness, and a new and radical community. And he further reinforces his mission by saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The sinners are those who know they are sick and need help. At the end of the day, the religious leader's lack of mercy shows that, in fact, they are the ones who are sick sinners. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel that they need forgiveness. 
this story is a scandal to those who view the gospel in, a way, uh, in the way of moral reform. Eating with sinners is a sign of God's loving acceptance. And so as a takeaway for us, Jesus does not impose preconditions, but instead loves us and meets us where we are. If we repent, it is not to gain Jesus' favor, but it's because he has first loved us. That is the scandal of the gospel. There is nothing we need to do first to become worthy of God's love. But by eating with sinners, Jesus does not condone sinful lifestyles. Instead, he points to their possible transformation. He pushes back on this whole system of ranking and classifying and separating people. He doesn't fear being contaminated by lepers or sinners, but instead blesses them and pours out his grace. Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus is known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Thomas Long tells the story of staying in a hotel room and finding a, a sign on the elevator door that said, party tonight, room 210, 8 p.m., everyone invited. Can you imagine walking into a hotel and seeing that on an elevator door? And he thought about this party, just the tantalizing nature of this, where people, whether bored or lonely or curious, maybe weary travelers or a vacationing family or a tired businessman could come together but it turned out to be a hoax. Maybe a joke on whoever's room was 210. <laughs> but according to this passage, Jesus throws that kind of party. A party where it doesn't matter so much what gets you in the door as what happens to you when you're there. And are we willing to do the same thing? Or are we, church, are we the ones more often than not, taking down the sign. The second tension in this passage is that of associating with outsiders without condoning sinful lifestyles. And Jesus shows that his mission is not accomplished by separating his followers from the world. No, Jesus does not wait for sinners to come to him. He seeks them out. He accepts them as people and establishes a, a friendship, a relationship with them challenges them to accept the only one who can truly bind, bind up their wounds. And so, church, we too must go. We must go because more often than not, those who are far from God are not looking to get connected to a local church. And as we go, let's pray that God would identify what we might call people of peace, like Levi. I love this portrait of him that we find here. Somebody who was connected to many other tax collectors and sinners. And in coming to Jesus, there was a whole network of other tax collectors and sinners that were, that were tapped into and that were drawn to Jesus as a result. Let us pray that God would help us identify people of peace in our community, those that God is already at work in and who have many that they are connected with that need to hear the life-giving message of hope. During the rule of Oliver Cromwell in England, there was a silver shortage for coins. He sent soldiers to the cathedral to see what silver they could find. And the report back was that the only silver was the statues of the saints. And Cromwell declared, melt down the saints and get them back into circulation. 
melt down the saints and get them back into circulation? Does that need to happen to us today? Do we need to be melted down and put back into circulation? Well, after this feasting controversy, one final controversy quickly arises, and that is the fasting controversy. Look at the complaint, first of all, in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? You see, many Jews fasted regularly, but John the Baptist's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees were part of different, maybe even competing renewal movements. And the Pharisees definitely took it to another level by fasting at least two times a week on set days, showing how zealous they were Teachers were considered responsible for the actions of the disciples, and so that's why Jesus is called out here. They're puzzled why Jesus' disciples do not fast and pray. And their question basically reveals that if he wants to be taken seriously, they need to up their fasting game. Bottom line, how would he respond? Verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. I love how Jesus masterfully responds with questions, with vivid imagery as well that stirs people's thinking. And during this time, the wedding feast involves seven days of festivities. Maybe we need to return to that. I don't know, but seven days. It was considered bad practice to fast during what is supposed to be such a joyful occasion. Fasting is a sign of, of mourning, and it would be unthinkable during such a joyful celebration. This phrase, though, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, is the first hint in Mark's gospel of Jesus' impending suffering and death. A time would come when he would be taken from them. It's no mistake that it happens here as opposition to Jesus is rising. And in those days, they will fast. Both in this time between his death and his resurrection, and now, church, for us today, as we live between his first coming and his second coming. Fasting is again appropriate because we await total deliverance. But as a takeaway for us, we no longer fast on fixed days set by laws, but we fast and pray in eager anticipation of Christ's return. The third tension here is, that we wrestle with is actually a key theme in the gospel. That is the tension between the already and the not yet. We have been saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we await the full realization of our faith. And fasting is not just giving up food for a certain length of time. It is an act of worship an act of worship that expresses our total dependence upon God. The bridegroom has been taken from us, but he is coming again. This passage actually, I think, beautifully points forward to the great marriage supper of the Lamb that we will celebrate together in the kingdom. And so to further drive his point home, Jesus presents a parable, this wisdom saying in two parts. The first being in verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. A new patch can't be put on an old shirt because when you wash it, it will shrink, it will pull the old shirt and tear it. 
And so the basic point is that the new garment would be ruined if you try to repair the older one. And what Jesus brings is new and cannot be combined with the old, especially with old traditions. Doing so basically wrecks both. Part two, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour wine, pour new wine into new wineskins. Wineskins were usually made from animal skins and were used for storing wine during these times. And as the new wine fermented, it would expand and stretch the new wineskins. And if you put new unfermented wine in old wineskins, they would burst. Again, Jesus is saying that you cannot mix the old with the new. And so the basic point I believe that Jesus is making here is that we cannot mix the kingdom of God with the structures of the existing religious tradition represented especially by that of the Pharisees. A new day of God's redeeming love has dawned in the person of Jesus Christ. The fourth tension here is that in both of these parables, the tension between the old and the new. Old and new garments, old and new wineskins. And Jesus did not come to simply patch up the old system. He is not something to be sprinkled on top of the status quo. He is not a reformer, but a transformer. The gospel is not a call to make a little room for Jesus in your lives. No. The question is whether we will join the wedding celebration as entirely new vessels, receptive to the gospel, and for it to ferment in our lives. And this should force us to question the purpose of our, of our very religious observances. Fasting or any other ritual as an attempt to gain God's favor should be rejected, along with anything we do just to conform to external rule-keeping. A new day of God's redeeming love has dawned in the person of Jesus Christ. Church, when God created the heavens and the earth, he prepared a, a, basically a feast for his image bearers in the garden. Talk about farm to table. But we rebelled against God, and sin entered God's good world. And as part of the curse, even that of producing food and crops became difficult and toilsome work. And we began building walls, barriers to separate one another, even defining who we can and cannot dine with in table fellowship. But even as God gave us the first hints of what he would do to bring us back to him in Isaiah 62, verse 5, God himself is the bridegroom who marries his people once more and rejoices over them. He sent his son on the greatest reclamation mission of all time to save sin-sick people like you and like me. And Jesus engaged in barrier-breaking table fellowship that signaled that a new day had dawned. New wine and new wineskins. And he showed himself to be God even by identifying as the bridegroom. The bridegroom. He has given us the communion feast, which we will celebrate here in a moment, to commemorate his death and was taken away by being nailed to a cruel Roman cross. But on the third day, he rose again to new life, conquering sin and death once and for all. 
and making a way for us to be radically reunited to the Father. And those who respond to the call to follow him are not just guests of the bridegroom, attendants at the wedding. No, church, we are, we are the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And there's work to be done in adding leaves and tables and tablecloths and place settings and more leaves and chairs to the table in the ever-expanding kingdom of God. Luke 13, 29 reminds us, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And as and we will feast together at the great marriage supper of the Lamb spoken of in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our, our bridegroom, strengthen your church. We ask for your grace and strength and personal presence through your spirit and help us to navigate these tensions to your glory, Lord. We praise you that regardless of our background or our status or reputation, your grace and your forgiveness is available. Lord, thank you for summoning us to follow you in the costly way. Thank you for not imposing preconditions, but instead loving us, meeting us where we are, and causing us to love you because you first loved us. Father, thank you that the new day of your redeeming love has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And in the in-between, Lord, find us faithful. Melt us down, get us back into circulation as we eagerly anticipate your return. Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we remember your suffering on our behalf and look forward to that day when we will eat it anew in your kingdom at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. It's in Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EVF, subscribe to our podcast, and to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.